Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to the Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. Now this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing, whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days composing Icelandic sagas or recipes for a three-day vegan feast, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Now sharing her five rules today is the author of Strong Words' favourite history book of last year, the book called The Darkness Echoing, Exploring Ireland's Places of Famine, Death and Rebellion, for which my guest, a history professor at Liverpool John Moores University, had the most inspired idea. She decided that to examine how Ireland presents its own story of suffering to the co- and conflict to the public, she would undertake an itinerary of what she calls dark tourism, and so visited Ireland's various battlefields, decommissioned prisons and sites where history once made its dreadful mark, to see how these places choose to present the past. Do they go with the straight facts of what can be supported by evidence, or do they prefer to fill the car parks and gift shops with a version that sticks less to the truth and more to lurid or morbid legend? And she does it in many instances by bringing to the project something rarely found in a history book, great wit and even laugh out loud humor. So I'd like to welcome the creator of this magnificent achievement, Dr. Gillian O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien, welcome. Thanks, Ed, for having me. Uh, I, now, I hugely enjoyed this book, um, and, but when were you first alerted to the problem that some of the guardians of historical sites were playing a bit fast and loose with the truth of what actually happened? Um, I think the idea sort of came to me when I was working on a couple of museum projects that looked at, there were fortresses or they were um, prison museums or they were going to be prison museums. And I realised that uh, contrary to my expectations, that everybody who worked in museums didn't always travel around to look at similar museums, partly because they don't have time and they don't have the money to do so. And so in my innocence, I decided I would start by looking at all the prison museums and thought that would take a couple of weeks and I might get a nice little report out of it. And uh, it was a really sort of naive departure off on a little road trip that suddenly became a two year project because as I went along, I was like, this is very interesting. I wonder where I could go next and you know one thing led to another and it was genuinely something that became something it had never intended to be because it was so interesting and because I'd never looked at things in such detail or in such close proximity I think that's the thing if you go to a museum once or twice a year you don't notice the build-up of a narrative. Okay um, I mean is this phenomenon of particular note in Ireland or, or have you sort of become aware of it wherever you visit historical sites in the world? I think it's a, I think it is quite widespread. I mean, I think, you know, countries tend to focus on, you know, either the great heroic triumphs of the past, and that in itself is problematic, um, and, or they'll focus on how badly put upon they were, usually by other nations. Um, 
I think what I notice in Ireland is that this frame which feeds into the Irish character where we do like to talk about misery and death in a very casual in the pub when we used to be allowed to go to pubs or on the street. Um, and so I think it, it, we were very comfortable with these sad stories because we think of it as sort of, sort of heroic martyrdom. And, you know, we do like a good funeral and a good story of death. It's also partly a problem of tourism, right? Not just the sort of uh, telling of history, you know, I, I makes you think of... Um, uh, Knossos in Crete, you know, the, the great centre of the Minoan civilization all those millennia ago. And when that was first ex excavated, perhaps a, it was about a hundred years ago, the, the chap who was excavating it decided to restore it, you know, add a bit of plaster, a bit of, you know, a coat of paint. It was the sort of archaeological equivalent of that Spanish Jesus fresco that some um, amateur had to go at uh, restoring. Are, are some of these sort of wilder embellishments of history sort of well-meaning? I think that's it. And, you know, I know this is very odd to say as a historian, but it's those sort of almost added extras. And I know that they do damage and I know there is obviously huge problems with them, but they're the things that stick in people's minds in sort of the, the non-historian person who's interested in the past. And if that brings people to go to places and to read another book or to go to a second museum, I'm sort of all for a tiny bit of, of I guess it's called vandalism. But, you know, we, we go around all these places and we look at 19th century uh, what, what we call graffiti and it's like oh isn't this amazing you know, like at the time they would have been regarded as the vandals of their day but now we look at it very differently because you can see that John F was here in 1873 and it's something to talk about so you know one generation's vandal is another generation's you know great story or something so I think we can be very precious about the past in, in ways that I'm not sure we ought to be. Okay. And how did you, I mean, when you, or I certainly get the impression from the book that you inspected pretty much the entire country. Is Did you manage to get round as much as you wanted to, or is, or did you, did you just scrape the surface in your... Well, I think in the book, I think I talk about about 200 and something sites and I went to a lot more that didn't quite make it into the book. Um, and there are many more still to see when you branch out beyond sort of the museums into all the little heritage sites and all the memorials on the sides of roads and, you know, the holy wells that are kind of part of people's culture. Um, I mean, I could have written a book twice as long, um, but uh, I kind of held some things back because I want to get back on the road uh, and do do more because I think there are more more tales to be told. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Excellent. So let's have a look at your five rules. Now, your first rule, you say, take the topic, but not yourself seriously how does that work well that one was what I really grappled with for this book particularly because obviously I'm dealing with a lot of you know tragedy and very sad stories you're dealing with death you're dealing with executions you're dealing with famine and emigration and these aren't topics that you can take particularly lightly and you can't make a joke of them but I didn't want to write a book that was going to be terribly dull and you know tragic and that people will feel really weighty going through and going do I have to get to the next page and so the way of trying to add some levity um, into it, well, I had to do something that I thought I would never do, which was sort of insert myself into the story, which as a historian is something you're trained almost not to do. Mm -hmm. But it was the only way I could, I think, make light of my experience rather than the stories I was talking about. And I think it was really important to see the absurd in things. Um, and you can do that while kind of walking through tragic tales. 
um, so that I could mock myself. But also, you know, you go to places um, that are about bad things that have happened. I remember going to one which was about a siege or the, the of siege of Derry. Um, and in it, where they're talking about people starving, they purely bought a job lot of mannequins. So some of the women have blusher on them and lipstick and eyelash extensions because they were obviously intended for the front window of a shop. And they've you know put a wig on and then they've lamped a plastic rat on her head. And you know, it's a tragic story, but it's equally absurd when you're there looking, you know, at this well-made up 20th century face uh, looking at you. So I think those are the sorts of things that I could make light of. And then, you know, the commodification of history where you go around, you know, stories of, of great tragedy, where great loss of life, and then you land into the gift shop. And there's something really absurd there. So you've got commemorative chocolate of the executions of 16 men of 1916, or you've got the Titanic in a snow globe um, where it's constantly underwater and you can shake, you know, shake your snow globe and you get these little silver shards you know, across it. So there had to be things that you found, I found absurd and funny uh, that I could put in to make it a lighter story. Okay, I mean, this presumably this is, this is, permanently one of the sort of big problems in writing history you know by its very nature it's a it's a serious business you know people died suffered things happened that affected events for decades or centuries to come and yet the the solemnity that such events demand especially as you point out you know some of these issues still stir some very intense emotions today you know this reverence and solemnity doesn't always make for the most gripping reading no, and I think that's one of the things about, you know, history books generally is that people are reluctant um, to a large part to get involved or interested in really serious history topics. And I thought one way of trying to do that, and I really wanted to write for, you know, not for other historians, but for people who had an interest in history and an interest in Ireland. And I think that is one of the problems. If you make it really boring, even if it's really accurate and you know very important, if people don't read it. Uh, then your story isn't, isn't being told. So I wanted to tell a serious story, but I wanted to try and make it entertaining and interesting and something, you know, that people might talk about, that it might spark conversations. So, you know, there were stories of, say, my grandmother laying herself out um, when she was alive to see how she'd look as a corpse. And you know, she wanted to look like, if she wanted to be a beautiful corpse. And, you know, by telling that story, I've had you know loads of emails from people going, oh, my God, there was a similar story in my family. And there was all this discussion about death. And I so showed this to my mother and they had these conversations. And it's great. I mean, that I really enjoy is that if this sparks other people's interest in the past or in why Ireland or the Irish seem obsessed by death. Well, that's that's really all I was trying to do. Well, it's a it's a brilliant beginning to the story. You know, this when you're talking about your, your grandmother and sort of planning the details of her own wake, you know, probably years before such details are, are going to be put into effect. And then when the day comes, your unfortunate English husband is a bit finds himself a bit green about the gills as she lies in her coffin among the tea things at her wake. You know, does this how does this sort of heightened familiarity with death and morbidity affect its presentation at tourist sites? I think there's a comfort um, or an ease with, uh, in some ways, with representing death in um, in Irish museums. And it does depend on the museum. It depends on, on the management. But I've rarely seen sort of great agonising over the presentation of, of human remains. You do see it a little in some of the state funded museums, but 
yeah, there's a there's a site in Dublin called St. Micken's Church and the vaults of that church have been open since the 19th century. And there are a number of mummies there and their bodies are visible because their um, coffins have broken open over time. And you can literally wander down there with a guide who essentially just opens the, the grating for you when you go down. And it's there without any sort of embellishment or any real discussion about whether or not we should be looking at these bodies. And I, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of go, oh, my God, should we be doing this? But equally, isn't this amazing that you get to go and, and see this? And they've all sorts of stories about how one is a nun and one is a crusader. And if you ask, how do they know that? They don't really, but they make for really good stories. And as an experience, it's something that I always recommend that people do, even though, you know, you're not getting very you know detailed historical explanations about anything. But, you know, half of going to these places is to be you know entertained I mean that's why people go and I've often wondered you know at what point is it normal to get up in the morning and go right come on kids we're going to a prison for the day um and yet you know hundreds of thousands of people do that every year so I mean one of the things that um I really took from the book is just how much or, or how much more I was able to sort of remember or retain thanks to these sort of personal or sort of lighter touches um uh, you know, the, I've got the great shelves of books behind me, several hundred pages long, and sometimes I only remember one or two details from them. I mean, if I'm lucky, I remember two, I think. And I think it's the same from history books. You know, they can be so challenging and difficult that actually it just all blends into some great uh, sort of block of something too difficult to sort of comprehend. So I, I really like the, the fact you mentioned um, you do that little test with people you were at school with. And so what do you remember from history at school? And they can often remember maybe one detail or, or two details. And those details in themselves are often wrong or they've somehow become over embellished or they were wrong in the first place or or they're, they're connected to the wrong thing. So have, how strong a grasp do you think people get generally tend to have of their national history given it's given that it's such a difficult you know topic to retain in one's head I think people you know have a feeling about their past um and that it's really partial because I mean certainly in Ireland uh, you have to do history until you're 15 and then you don't have to do any history at all but you're just doing the school curriculum and yet I've never met um, a group of people who have such strong opinions about their past. And then I used to wonder, you know, what was that based on? Mm -hmm. um, so if everybody stops learning, I, you know, I don't remember anything at all. I learned about maths, you know, long division sort of defeats me. And I definitely learned that until I left school. Um, and I've no idea about fractions or anything like that. So I'm assuming that if you've never, if you don't continue to study history, you do end up with those tiny partial things that just sit in your head and for me it was about a guy called Silken Thomas and all I can tell you about Silken Thomas is that he was known as Silken Thomas because of the fine clothes he and his troops wore which we had to learn by rote I can't tell you anything else about him and it realized that people have very strong opinions based on almost nothing so it might be based on having watched a documentary at one point but it might be based on what they learned at school or what their parents told them or you know the local lore about a local area and in ireland there is this real history by osmosis um that if you're from a place 
It doesn't matter if you've never read a book about it, that somehow by standing on that very soil, it seeps up through you. And if somebody who's not from there, but has you know a PhD or has spent years and years working on it, if they have an opinion, well, that's not anything like as valid. If you've got six generations from the soil um, or you've learned a, a ballad about it, which I used to find with my own grandfather, who was from Wexford, um, where there was a big rebellion in 1798. I wrote a PhD on this topic, but he learned the lyrics of one ballad and me versus the lyrics of a ballad. The ballad always was going to win. <laughs> so, and it's not just in Ireland. I think I can replicate that, that feeling pretty much anywhere. And I see it very much um, in Britain where I'm teaching at a university here, you know, the, the stories of empire. And, you know, I have obviously now a lot of, of British students and, you know, an Irish perspective of Churchill and an Irish perspective of Oliver Cromwell is a very different perspective from a British perspective of both of those, or particularly an English perspective of both of those men. So that's one thing that doing this book has been really good for me is to always you know, recognise that there are other ways of telling a story. And my way is one way, but you can tell it other ways. Quite. And it kind of leads on to the second point you made. About, uh, your second rule is to have a sense of place and what does that what does a sense of place mean to you well it seems like a silly rule really for a historian because I can't go back you know if I had a special power it would be to time travel back and obviously I can't do that but for me a sense of place it's really important for me to go to where I'm writing uh, and what I'm writing about and obviously in this book because it's partly about my journey around Ireland that was very easy to do and obvious that I had to do and I couldn't look at museums uh, via their websites I had to really be there and I had to engage with people um, and I had to talk to people in the local area and all of that so that was quite easy for me to do for this book but it's always been really important to me because um, so my previous book which is called Blood Runs Green which is about a murder in Chicago in the 1880s. Um, and for that, I went and lived in Chicago. And obviously Chicago of the 21st century is a really different city to Chicago of the 1880s. You know, there's no comparison. Um, you know, Almost every building is gone that would have been there in the late 19th century. But what was really important for me was that I could walk the distance between where the murdered man lived to where he was murdered, to where how they got him to the lake, to where the sewer, where his body was found and all of those things. Just that ability to place yourself um, is really important to me. And I know for a lot of historians, they're happy to sit in an archive, but I need to go to where I'm writing about, which is, is sort of odd um, because I can't go backwards. But when... For this, for the last book, for the, um, the Darkness Echoing, I wrote a lot of the book in places where that were important to the book along the west coast of Ireland and to get up and walk that landscape. And a lot of that landscape is very unchanged. Um, and you can see the sort of landscape of loss where you know, places have been sort of denuded of people or there have been walls that were built in the famine years that are still there. And you, you get a real sense of of a place that you're writing about and the landscape. And I don't think I could have, you couldn't have done this book um, with desk research. So um, I think you need to know whereof you write for these type of, of books. Okay, I mean, often when I was dragged around castles as a child, you know, uh, uh, I was always, I would always try and remember, not remember, but, you know, see if I could summon up what it was, what life was like in these places, especially in the sort of grimmer parts of the castle. 
and uh, and I never really could. You know, I'd, I've never found that walls or um, you know flagstones or towers or whatever can you know it feels like there's a there's a barrier to my imagination to i know that awful things happen there but I, but the walls themselves don't 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 give anything how do you sort of how do you overcome this i well i also find that with with castles particularly maybe it's just because i was never born to one no matter what period i would have been born in i would not i'd have been the hired help rather than living in the castle and so I actually find a greater affinity with seeing the ruins of a mud cabin so, um, than I do with, with the castle. And I think it's that constant thing and a, a real awareness, I think, over the last number of years um, is that museums, for the most part, tell the stories of the rich because the poor leave very little behind. And if you want to try and imagine life as, as being you know, relatively poor, which is what most of us would have been had we been living back then, is you have to go and look much more closely at landscape to see what's there. And I find it much easier to walk a a road in the west of Ireland and, and get a sense of what it might have been like to try and eke out a living where you can see the reed beds and you can see the marshy land and go, you, farming of that would have been difficult. And it's partly because that's the where my family came from. And you know, up until relatively recently, they had a small farm there and it was marshy and it was impossible to eke out a living there. And I think my grandmother, who was a very influential figure, in my life, almost retrospectively more than when she was alive. But, you know, she had no sentimentality about that. She was like, I would go, oh, but I'd love to live back in the west of Ireland by the Atlantic. And she'd say, but you can't grow anything. How, would you, how will you make a living? You know, you know, why would, you know, this land gave us nothing but hardship. Um, and I think that having that constant awareness of not over-sentimentalizing the past is really helpful but but like you I do have great greater difficulty imagining myself in a grand house or a castle. Were there places that you found especially evocative? Yes um, but they're not sort of the obvious places um, they're sort of standing in a graveyard um, and there was one particular uh, event which didn't make it into the book because I don't know in a way it was so moving I um, was over in, in Galway and in the sea swimming with a friend of mine and we looked up at, um, you know, back at the coast and you could see a series of, you know, just stones on the top of, you know, a mound. And we could see them from the house we were staying in and it looked like it was just a scattering of stones. But when you were out in the sea, you could see that they were done along kind of lines and that they had been placed there. So after we finished swimming, we climbed up onto to the mound which had lots of don't enter you know keep away private property which we obviously ignored and when we got there it was really clear that this was a graveyard and that this was a graveyard uh, which in Ireland is called a killeen and it's a graveyard for those who died outside the church so they were babies who were born and had not been baptized or women who'd had children out of wedlock or they're all really tragic stories where the church would not allow these people be buried in a churchyard um, and they're awful awfully sad stories and I think we hadn't expected to see that that day and we went up and sort of sat there and there was something really moving about those hidden histories um, and it was you know, the same in a part of Mayo where I could, looked out and you could see where a huge storm had destroyed a whole island community. And you can see the ruins from standing on the mainland looking out. And, and there's something, I think, really moving 
when you can see that. Um, so it's small things that I found incredibly moving, not the big um, 9,000 people are buried in this one famine pit. I find those sort of figures are impossible to imagine. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in that. So I tried to pick out the smaller stories that people might, you know, have sort of some sort of fellow feeling with an individual rather than a, a big, huge number. Okay. Now your third rule, you say follow the brown sign. Please explain. Yeah, I mean this, uh, I think both literally and figuratively. Um, because obviously when you're writing anything, you have some sort of a plan uh, because you can't do everything. So I did have a plan which got ripped up and thrown away uh, many times. And so literally I would follow brown signs on the road um, and I would take a left if it said castle on a brown sign and go down and see what it was. And or you know, usually it was castles or churches or cemeteries. They're keen on the letter C, it seems, with a brown sign. Um, but yeah, you know, sometimes it would just be a dead end. And often I'd get nothing out of it. But there's quite a lot of those just going slightly off piste that did make it to the book. And even if it didn't, if the site didn't, it sparked something that, you know, then prompted something else. But also by what I mean by following brand signs is to take advice outside of your area of expertise. I think you know, academics tend to operate or tended to operate in silos where historians talk to historians and art historians talk to art historians and literature people talk to literature people. Whereas uh, one of the really great joys of doing this book was I got to talk to all sorts of other experts. So conservation people and poets and writers and people sitting on bar stools um, and that from all of those, I learned different ways of looking at things. So from you know people who work in the museums really taught me how to look at material culture in a way I wouldn't ordinarily look at. Or friends who work in conservation would point out things in buildings and show me a whole new way of looking at a building and how it was created and how it had been changed over time in a way that I would never have thought of looking at it and having those perspectives. I think it has had a really long-term impact. So I now look at things in a hu hugely different way. And one of the greatest things I think someone pointed out to me was if you're ever walking down any high street is look above the ground floor because that's where you see the interesting things because you get all the generic, you know, all the mm -hmm. McDonald's and the generic shop fronts, but it's the bit above where you get the real story and you know the really interesting mix of architectural styles over you know several hundred years. And so that's, what I do is I, I look above the ground floor now all the time. And one of the big themes of your book is how some historic sites have gone full legend, you know, anything to pull the visitors in, regardless of historical accuracy. What were some of the more outrageous misrepresentations? Well, the one that was most, I think, damaging and the one that I called out more than any other is the this idea that the Irish were slaves. Um, which you know comes up time and again, particularly on you know the internet or on Twitter, and uh, that appears in a number of museums about how the Irish had been slaves, which isn't true. The Irish had were indentured servants, which is quite a different thing because you you know, you get your passage paid, you work for seven years. It's not fun. I'm not suggesting that it's in any way good, but you're not a servant, and after you've worked your time or you're not a slave after you've worked your time, you're free to go. But also those people who were indentured servants, if they had children in their period of indenture, those children were never indentured. So unlike slaves where it was sort of passed down from generation to generation and the enslaved people, 
were incredibly brutally treated. But that, I think, has been taken up by the far right to sort of say, you know, we all suffered and to try and reduce the impact of the really horrific stories of real enslaved people. And so that I did call out um, a lot. And the same, you do get the same thing, not so much in Irish museums. In fact, you get it very little, but the idea that the Irish famine uh, was a genocide is something that, you know, crops up time uh, and time again. Though I think it, it to be fair to all the Irish museums, they don't try and, and propagate that myth. Okay. Now your fourth rule, you said you're going to help to help me with this one a little bit. It said you say uh, balance synthesis with originality. We're kind of getting into academic altitudes where I start to run out of oxygen a little bit here. So talk talk me through this one gently. Well, well, you're not you're not the only one. I think one of the things that I, I hated about being a history student, and, and um, I do think this has hugely improved, is um, that historians were taught how to uh, research books were never taught how to write and in fact you were trained to write in the passive voice which is you know something that's very good at putting me to sleep um I like you know I like you know people to actually have an opinion and for that to be to be clear in it um and so in writing this book which you know it for the darkness echoing I really wanted to write it for, as a book for people who knew nothing about Irish history but also for people who do know about Irish history and so I built it I think on the back of a lot of other people's work so I wanted to synthesize sort of the best of uh, work that has been written because obviously I think my book covers about 5,000 years of Irish history and I am not an expert on 5,000 years of Irish history um so but I am fortunate that I know a lot of people who are experts in different periods. And so I did pull in lots of favours of saying, if you were to write about Newgrange and uh, it, what would you read? So friends sort of gave me the best of which I went off and read. And so you know, the foundations of the book are based a lot on, you know, generations of other people's work. And so I wanted to synthesise that and bring the best of that. But I also didn't want it to just be a rehashing of what other people had written. So there is a huge amount of original research in this book based on, I guess, all of the field trips, but also the research I've been doing for the last sort of 15 years. And I think it's not a book I could have written years ago. I think it's a book that you can only write when you've been teaching for a long time and know what stories catch students' attention. And also when you've been doing research in a, in a range of things. Um, so that's really what I meant. Um, about that balancing synthesis with originality, but also um, not just building it on historians, because I think it's really important that we look at the importance of fiction and poetry and plays and music in building up people's sense of their own identity and the sense of the past. So I was really interested in you know, looking at plays and listening to you know, having a soundtrack of Ireland's past um, and to not to go away from kind of just traditional, you know, historians like archives and dusty things and things that are written down. And I wanted to see what have we painted? What have we designed? What have we sung? Um, what have we danced to those? And to try and bring a sense of that, because I think that's what people find, people who are not professional historians, more engaging. If you can, you know, go have them read it and go, oh, I know that song. You know, oh. And it's not just Boney M's Rasputin, which you know I had to at some point put in. <laughs> and you also, your fifth rule, you say uh, embrace 
contradictions. What sort of contradictions did you run up against? Well, but I ran into all sorts of contradictions, both within myself and, um, you know, in, in the museums themselves. And I think one of the big problems, and I, I partly blame Twitter for this, is that everything now is binary. You have to you have to have a very strong opinion and it has to be unshakable and you have to be able to say it in 280 characters or less. And I find that 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 shuts down all sorts of conversations and it doesn't allow for any evolution of thought. Um, because, I mean, I'm always amazed that people have such strong opinions about pretty much everything when I struggle to you know, have a, an opinion about whether I want tea or coffee in the morning. Um, but I, you know, I think it's OK to have two contradictory ideas in your head simultaneously. I don't think that that's uh, a, a problem. I think there's, uh, a, you know, in Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, he talks about having two thinks at a time. And I'm great for having two thinks at a time. Um, because you can, I can go into a museum and I can see, say, the bog bodies in the National Museum where they, they, these bodies were incredibly well preserved because they've been in, a, in an Irish bog for several thousand years. And I can go in and go, these are amazing. I am so privileged to be able to look at these and to look at the hands and see, you can still see the skin and the nails. And it, it's remarkable. Every time I go in, I'm amazed by this. And I love that I can do that. Equally, I can at the same time have a thought in my head, which is these people never gave permission for me to stand here and look at them. And I can carry both of those thoughts absolutely simultaneously. But I think we're increasingly not allowed to do that, um, that we're expected to go, no, this is a very bad thing. These people did not give their permission um, or this is great. And I wanted to be able to say you, you can have these things you can say the famine is absolutely appalling and the British government were dreadful and they should have done more without condemning all British people everywhere which you know sometimes doesn't seem that you're allowed to do nuance I wanted to put in nuance and I, and I wanted to be open to say I'm happy to change my mind if there's new information I, you know that's fine it is quite puzzling, isn't it, that uh, people can on one hand be so puritanical and uh, dogmatic, and yet at the same time, you know, all these, with every sort of new topic that one comes to, I come to it with from a position of ignorance. And so knowing how limited my, um, uh, my knowledge is of a particular subject, everything, that you know, that means that many things may possibly be true. I, I don't know, and yet, you know, so how... I, yeah, I, yeah. Opinions on things which they, by definition, can't know anything about. Well, this is true. I think that the, as I was doing this, um, I think maybe just in general, I found that you know, the more I know, the less I know I know. Yes, um, right. And sort of the more that you get in your head, the more you accept that you're not an expert on, on everything. And that I, I'm really frightened of people who are so you know, determinedly um, confident in their opinions because it doesn't leave you much wiggle room um, to back down and say, oh, okay, I, I've got that wrong or I'd like to change my mind on this because I've now read this. And that, you know, different perspectives on a story can all be true. So it's okay and totally true if you're Irish to say Oliver Cromwell was appalling. Uh, there's nothing good from an Irish perspective about Oliver Cromwell. It's equally okay if you're looking at parliamentary history to say, well, actually, 
not all bad. Um, the same for Churchill. There are good things about Churchill, equally awful things about Churchill. Um, and that's fine. I think we can have all these different perspectives. Um, and I think, you know, I've noticed, you know, all of this narrative about COVID and lockdown and we're all in it together. I kind of wonder how, when we look at this in years to come, how representative we'll find historians have been about our own personal experiences. It makes me wonder, you know, when you read about the Blitz, were they really all in it together? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, another of the problems that you run up against in this field is that, you know, you, is that there are multiple versions of the same event. You know, there's mm. a very amusing bit about the about uh, different people telling you exactly how Michael Collins died and all of them are absolutely adamant that this is the version uh, and I think there are five or six different um, different uh, contrasting versions of, uh, of what happened how, how do you unravel that kind of thing or do you is there no point in even trying really well I think I mean I think there is an accepted or at least for the moment accepted version that he was killed by those who were attacking him and he wasn't killed by those who were on his side it, that's the current accepted version but anything to do with, with Michael Collins um is always you know, is always so controversial and, and really recently uh, on Twitter I put up a photograph of Michael Collins slippers which are my absolute favorite artifact of all the artifacts that I've ever come across because they're bright blue embroidered slippers with a wolf uh, face on the front and they've kept their color because they've never been put on public display and this created this huge Twitter storm and you know we'd hundreds of thousands of retweets and, and they went on the Irish national television for the first time and uh, the curate, curator Brenda Malone uh, and I were inundated with press requests to talk about these slippers and we had genuinely it was the first time that something about Michael Collins did not create you know huge uproar and scandal and people shouting at each other and everyone was just going these are amazing and it was a real lesson in how you can get an artifact to spark a really interesting conversation that isn't controversial and what was great about it is I think we look back you know Collins is important in the Irish kind of you know independent story so the period 1916 to 1922 and that's a period I think we think of in sepia or in black and white because that's how we see it in newsreels and suddenly we've got this really vibrant blue slippers that show a different side to a man that's more usually seen in military wear and it was great to get that sort of normal story and I thought these are this is a brilliant jumping off point to let's talk about the ordinary and we can talk about the extraordinary within the ordinary and wouldn't that be fun if we could if we could do that like take the small things and and did writing this book make you think differently about Ireland yes yes I think it did um I think it, it made me well it made me really aware of parts of the country I hadn't been to for years um made me aware of I think the tininess of the country and how many different versions of things appear in that also made me really realize that what we stories that we tell are very much stories that are not particularly inclusive so we don't tell stories of immigration we're very big on emigration and the Irish who go away particularly those who go away and do well so we're very big on telling you stories about JFK and Barack Obama and I'm sure there's a museum exhibit about to come out on Joe Biden um but what we're not good about is talking about those who come and settle. So, you know, Ireland has in recent years become a country where people arrive into 
And they don't see that they're part of a wave that's been continued, you know, has been there since pre-Vikings. Um, so we tell a story that is quite exclusive rather than inclusive. And we also don't tell, you know, I think the Irish, the Irish story, it's always been really easy to tell because it's always England is bad and everything bad that ever happened is England. Now, not Scotland. We're quite happy with Scots. And poor Wales hardly gets a mention ever. I always feel very sorry. You know, please, someone talk about Wales. Um, but it's the English. You know, we just blame everything. And to do that means you cast yourself always as a good guy. And particularly in the 20th century, the Irish state was not the good guy. If you're an unmarried, if you're a woman, and particularly if you're an unmarried mother, if there are all sorts of things, if you're gay, it was not a welcoming state. But we've sort of glossed over that because we can't blame England for it. Um, and I think casting yourself as a hero is hugely problematic. Again, back to the nuance. Um, and I think we need to do a lot more. Um, and there are loads of great stories. It's not that I want to be terribly po-faced about it all. I just want to tell good stories, but broader stories. And I think ones that are more engaging to young people and to those who don't have 27 generations, you know, in a family farm somewhere in the West of Ireland. You know, that isn't all, everyone's story. You know, it might be my story, but it isn't everyone's. And did it make you think differently about writing history? Yes. Um, I think it's been a journey I've been on. I think the, the um, Blood Runs Green was a book I wrote to have people read, uh, but it was also, you know, there were a lot of footnotes and it was definitely a book based very much on academic research. Whereas this, um, I well, putting myself in it was a real change. Uh, and that was the, the biggest struggle for me because I tend not to like to talk about myself very much. Um, and, you know, putting the kids that I brought with me on the trips, putting them in it uh, and, and making it a much more personal story. And I think, um, I think that that's something that I would be happy to do again if I thought that it, it helped open up conversations. Brilliant. Dr. Gillian O'Brien, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's, um, so just to remind people, it's The Darkness Echoing. It's published by Doubleday Ireland. It's uh, cost $14.99 and I found it tremendously educational and uh, a really enjoyable read. And for someone who can often find history a little bit daunting, it was a real pleasure to come across such a fabulous book. So I urge everybody to buy it immediately. Dr. Gillian O'Brien, thank you so much. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. 